0: Hi, this is Sean Bartone, editor of Engage Dharma magazine blog, and this is our podcast uh, for Engage. Um, today, we're interviewing. Uh, I'm interviewing uh, Reed Ingalls, who is a who is researching anarchism and Buddhism, and he has a blog called No Selves, No Masters, and recently published an article on. Ichiyama Gudo, who um, was a Zen uh, teacher practitioner who wrote about uh, and advocated for anarchist social movements and social revolution in Japan. Reed has also done extensive studies of the history of anarchist thought in Buddhism uh, in the past. and is encounters with recent authors on the subject of anarchism and Buddhism and how they do or don't uh, connect. So our conversation today is going to be about um, our mutual interests in anarchism and Buddhism and how they do or don't connect with each other. So enjoy the conversation. Hey Reed, how you doing? So, like I said, uh, my name is Sean. By the way, Sean Bartone, and I run uh, the Engage blog. And um, I did read your piece on Goudo or Gujo. Let me just ask you just a few basic introductory questions about yourself and uh,
1: sure.
0: Um, you're up in Washington State. Okay. Yeah, I
1: live in Washington.
0: Ah, uh, okay. And whereabouts, Seattle, or that were other, um, uh, otherwise down in Olympia, Olympia. Okay, that's cool. we just yeah. had a, a a person from who runs the the Olympia, um, Washington bus service, inter intercity bus. huh. Yeah, she's the director of that bus system. Uh, we did a Zoom call with her, and she talked about the buses are all free in Olympia, right?
1: yeah yeah that they did that just the past couple of years right. that's great right
0: so yeah so that was really cool um yeah they've become sort of a model for us to have we have we have fair free buses here in worcester now too and i'm on the I'm on the fair free Worcester committee, and I was the one who invited this person from Olympia Washington oh, <laughs> to speak to us, so I'm a little bit familiar with olympia washington um so where are you with Buddhism and how'd you get into it or how long you've been in it? And, you know, generally.
1: Yeah. Um, let's see for me, I think, you know, I read some books on it back when I was a teenager, you know, interested in like philosophy and drugs and countercultural stuff. I think I probably read like the Tibetan book of the dead translation or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, Around that same time, a little later, I started going to um, a therapist um, for, like, depression and stuff that I was dealing with at the time, and he introduced me to, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, sort of the therapeutic um, mindfulness meditation, played some, like, Jack Caulfield tapes or something.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. So that kind of got me into practicing meditation, and from there, I just kind of kept running into Buddhist philosophy and being interested in it, like uh, reading Gary Snyder. Mm -hmm. I was uh, like in my early, early 20s, was pretty influential, Mm -hmm. got me more interested in Zen. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I think eventually, while I was um, living in Seattle for a while, as a student, I started visiting a local Zen center they had up there. And it was kind of my first time with a group.
0: Okay, so um, yeah, that sounds like a really good introduction. Gary Snyder, of course, is has written about Buddhist anarchism. Yeah, you
1: know that yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I came across that piece sometime in that period when I was reading him, and right. Right. it was very interesting to me. Um, and I think, you know, um, for me at least, like um, Buddhist philosophy and anarchist philosophy were ideas that I more or less like kind of developed around the same time. So they've been pretty uh, intermingled for me at least, you know, like with reading Snyder, um, this sort of thing.
0: Right, cool, yeah. So uh, you've started to do a little, have you started to do a little more research into uh, anarchism and Buddhism?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I started like kind of in this year during the winter, I guess, uh, being locked down in COVID land, uh, just got me, I got, I got more interested in studying, uh, philosophy again and Buddhist philosophy at the time I had been kind of, um, not been too engaged with it for a little bit. Um, and I think it was maybe like rereading that Gary Snyder thing, and then coming across some of the biographies of Uchiyamagudo that um, kind of sparked the interest in me of being like, hmm. Like, simultaneously, here's two people who, um, you know, who I admire, who both had this idea, you know, and attempted to some degree to explain it, like saying like, you know, there's a natural connection between these two ideas, but but also that both of them um, didn't explain it very comprehensively. So that kind of like sparked my curiosity of being like, so on the one hand, these two like, you know, very uh, intelligent, accomplished people um, think there's something to this, but also nobody seems to give it more than kind of a cursory like, Mm -hmm. kind of glossing over so that that got me interested in like well really like looking at it much more um like critically and trying to like flesh out um sort of what it is these people are getting at (laughs) and you know uh, i guess inevitably adding my own spin on it
0: yeah so what where do you see the what are the connections for you uh between these two
1: yeah, I guess um, so. A lot, of, a lot of these, uh, like people like Snyder or Gudo, kind of start from a place of sort of general principles, like um, things like compassion, Buddha nature, um, kind of pointing to the fundamental equality of all beings. Um, mm-hmm. And from there, they they sort of take the stance of, well, that means that we have to act to protect other people, other beings in the world, um, act compassionately. Um, yeah, but I guess digging a little deeper beyond those, because that's something that you find in nearly every major religious tradition is like an anarchist current. Right. People have done that with Christianity. They've done it with Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, even with Islam. Um, so it's it's kind of pointing to, it, I think, some fundamental kind of uh, ideas or practices about what a certain attitude towards compassion and well-being for others um, looks like is actualized as in the world. And so I think that's kind of a, a point of unity between a lot of religious traditions and anarchism, but I also wanted to go a little deeper into some of the like unique philosophical or practical features of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm still kind of early uh, in the research. I haven't um, got like a super solid conclusion yet, but one um, place that I have explored so far that's interesting is uh, in kind of the uh, the three marks of existence system
0: yeah,
1: often, often pointed to in Vipassana and other uh, meditation practices. Um, so that's the um, existence of Dukkha, um, Anicca and Anatta. So not self impermanence and suffering. And on one hand, I'm kind of hesitant about like, speculating on those. Because uh, I think, for the most part, their fundamental, like, usefulness is for just analyzing sensory experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I can't really resist, <laughs> I guess, uh, uh, contemplating them in like, a larger picture. So one thing that for example, like, um, anata selflessness, um, points to, for me at least, is uh, just the fact that there is no one in control necessarily uh, from like an internal perspective. Um, realizing that and the impermanence and the friction caused from not realizing it, it becomes clinging, clinging and grasping and suffering. Um, comes from this idea of trying to like rule or control the idea that there's somebody in charge when really it's what's going on is the interplay of all of our sensory experiences moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from that, you can kind of, you know, imagine how that applies to the uh, the real world, the social world, the political world, Is authority being
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, kind of a, a, an illusion that we believe in. You know, it's a tangible illusion, it has real effects on people, just like the idea of a controlling, ruling inner self is, but ultimately doesn't really accord with nature or um, how people actually kind of get along in the world. Uh,
2: right,
1: right. So that's kind of like a, I don't know, like a phenomenology kind of. Uh, parallel between the two philosophies. Um, and also in my work so far, I've spent a lot of time just pointing out the ways that they aren't similar. Uh, so I think, as well as like searching for comparisons and similarities, it's important to like, uh, take a critical approach.
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. Because, so, I, I, you know, I mean, it depends on what you're looking at, but I think most forms of Buddhism today, whether Asian or Western, have, are quite authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, that's in terms of their structure, right? That's, that's, that's in terms of their actual institutional structure, who's in charge, who gets to do the teaching, who is the student, you know, so-called, um, and um, who gets to interpret Buddhist scripture or dharma or practice even in a particular way and set set the standard or the model for what we're supposed to follow. Um, and you know, it's quite authoritarian, even, even in its kind of more democratic form in the United States. Um, and the to me, the anarchist notion or the anarchist view of Buddhism is that, you know, we have to liberate ourselves and that it's it's it's, it's um, we're not dependent on a teacher or a guru or a lama. Um, and, you know, my, my my personal view on it is that I, I was, was inspired by the notion, and uh, I don't know which Pali scripture it is, but that we're supposed to become independent in the Dhamma. And that
2: mm-hmm.
0: once you learn the Dhamma and you can do it yourself, then you don't need to rely on other people to teach you. I mean, And my opinion is that basically I can learn from everyone. And I'm willing to learn from everyone. But no one is the teacher for me, you know what I mean? And um, so, and the goal according to what the Buddha said is to become independent in the Dhamma so that you can Mm -hmm. actually teach yourself. In my experience too with, um, I I was in Tibetan, you know, um, Tibetan um, lineages for a while, just basically to Shambhala and then Uh, Nalanda Bodhi and then I switched to Theravada and I started reading the Pali Canon and I was really kind of and one of the reasons why I did that was because I um you know Nalanda Bodhi was they gave you this pretty inexpensive or really almost free classes in in Dhamma, which I really appreciate you know I appreciate but they completely misrepresented um, Theravada or the Pali Canon Mm. it just didn't make any sense to me
1: the old Mahayana superiority conceived right. kind of thing.
0: Yeah, or they, they were actually trying to present it as, but they present, they, they just, it just didn't make any sense. I thought this this can't be it, you know? I mean, it's its the Tibetan version of Hinayana, as they call mm. it, right? It's the Tibetan version of it. But, um, and then I just started, you know, I started going to a Theravada uh, uh, Sangha, actually a Sri Lankan immigrant, mostly immigrant Sangha. And I started reading the uh, canon myself. And and these days you can get it online, like Access to Insight.
1: Yeah, Um, great resource.
0: Fantastic, you can read it. Um, And as I was reading this stuff, I was realizing that this stuff is really pretty basic. There's nothing really so difficult here that you need to have a college degree or a special teacher or anything you know, if you have basically an eighth or a 10th grade education and you can read, then you can understand the poly canon. Just read it, you know, just read it yourself. You'll get mm-hmm. it. There's really nothing terribly complicated about it. I mean, there are passages that are more sophisticated, a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more kind of in, um, enculturated in the deep past, the ancient past and, and so on. That might need some interpretation, but the basics are completely understandable by anybody with a grade school education or maybe 10th, 8th or 10th grade education.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, you know, it's like, and, and it, it, I found it to be incredibly clear exactly what it was trying to say. Um, and it um, got me on starting the idea that I'm going to teach myself. I do not need lamas, I don't need acharyas, I don't need certified teachers, um, I can, I can, you know, and plus not only that, but there's just so much available on the web now in terms of books and podcasts and articles, it's a great many of the, the academic scholarship on Buddhism is freely available on the web, mm-hmm. from open, um, you know, open source uh, journals, academic journals. Um, you know, teach yourself and and that sort of eventually evolved into we we are ultimately our own liberators and to stop locating the idea of liberation in a Buddha, whatever that is, you know, mythologically a Buddha, if, if there's such a person ever existed, um, or a uh, or the Dhamma or the Sangha, like. The sangha is just a peer group that kind of reinforces everything, mm-hmm. um, and even the Dhamma is like the Dhamma is there to ask you questions and make you think about things in a way that you might not do on your own by yourself. That's how I treat it, and that, um, and that basically I am the I am the source of my own liberation. You know, and, and in fact, Buddha teaches that, right? I am the source of my own liberation. I, it's not, It doesn't come from outside of me. It's I make use of these things to help me become liberated. But I'm the source of my own liberation. It's to stop externalizing it in a religion or a teacher or a group or whatever. So, yeah. you know, yeah. And then, well, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, I just think that is definitely another, another point, um, especially emphasized in, like, the Theravada scriptures, early Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, um, that I think is useful and attractive and somewhat anarchic is that, you know, non-reliance non, non uh, reliance on external things. Although, you know, also I think the, the Sangha aspect is important as well in sort of like a communal sort of way, like having um, having supportive community and friends to help practice and improve yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is one sutta where the Buddha was like, uh, made the remark that like the uh, having having good friends is the entirety of the spiritual life. So right. implying that you have, you know, supportive community around you to help you practice. Right. But it doesn't say anything about having a strong authoritative teacher, <laughs> just friends.
0: Right, yeah, friends, and the friends don't have to necessarily be um, like part of a Buddhist organization, Mm -hmm. you and me talking on Zoom, right, or, um, so, uh, and and I think also in terms of the Sangha, that, that is, again, when you remove that teacher or Lama from the sort of, that kind of hierarchy, right, so where the teacher is the one who's responsible for the care, of the members of the sangha and so on, then it's up to the responsibility of the members of the sangha or the group to care for each other. That's mm-hmm. where the communal aspect comes in, that we have, to, we're responsible to take care of each other and not rely on authority, on you know, basically like we're all the little kids in this family and, you know, the mommy and poppy teacher are gonna take care of us. You know, it's like, no, we have to be responsible for each other, which means that I learn the Dhamma and I practice. So that I can help you, and you learn the Dharma, and you practice. So you can help me. You know, what I mean, yeah. it's, there's a mutual aid here, not uh, a hierarchy of uh, of uh, external authority from a teacher. So that's kind of like you know, that's kind of like my take on it. You know, this, yeah.
1: You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, several like kind of early European anarchist writers noticed once Buddhist literature is becoming available in Europe, they noticed you know, similarities between their ideas and the movements they were describing. And, you know, some of the uh, features of like the early Buddhist community. I think uh, like there's a famous French geographer, Elisee Reclus who was a big anarchist writer um, in the late 1800s. And I think he, I remember reading a passage where he pointed out sort of the anarchic communistic kind of organization of the early Sangha. I think he pointed to sort of uh, the points in history where Buddhism was made into like kind of state religion or overly dependent on patronage for like holding monastic lands and wealth is sort of the uh, point of its uh, decline into uh, just uh, religiosity over you know, truth seeking.
0: Yeah, yeah, or 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 liberation seeking. Yeah. So it's like to me is like uh it's it's not very liberating to to end up being dependent on a, on a teacher or an organization. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um what's the name of this author that you were talking about? Can could you yeah, because that's where I've never heard Which of.
1: Which author? Oh, Elise Reclu.
0: Uh, heart Yeah, R
1: E C L U S.
0: Okay, that's cool. Yeah. I'll check that out. Definitely. I
1: think he mentions it in um a book called uh, "Anarchy, Modernity, Geography," I think. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyone interested? There's a really great resource called the AnarchistLibrary.org. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah.
1: It's on there. A lot of this stuff I've been reading has been on there. So.
0: Cool. That's really good. I have I've accessed stuff from the Anarchist uh, Library too. Um, actually, one of the other people that I that is on the Anarchist Library is um, uh, Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti is um, yeah. often referred to as an anarchist spiritual teacher because um, he he's not specifically a Buddhist. I think he he's an Indian philosopher, and he gets a lot of his philosophy from Buddhism, but he doesn't identify himself as a Buddhist. You know? Yeah, and, and he, he, he whole, was
1: like he was the guy who was like raised by the, theosof,
0: the yeah, theosophists,
1: yeah. right, and then kind of broke off from them.
0: That's interesting
1: right. history with them sort of like mm-hmm. you know theosophists being like integral to the development of like buddhist modernism right. having connections to um krishnamurti some of them were anarchists as well some of them were very much not but um mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah he was good he was groomed to be the next world teacher by the theosophists and they thought they had found their their man and I guess he was 21 or 23, whatever it was, and he acceded to the, the throne or position of, as teacher or head teacher of the Theosophical Society. And the first thing he did the day that he was installed as the teacher was he dissolved the organization. And Good for I, he him <laughs> about why he was doing this. And he said, you have to free yourselves. You know, this is not gonna, you think coming to me is not gonna work. You know, it's not gonna work for you or me um, and he dissolved the organization, he um, sure. left. But he actually did become uh, a great teacher. And I have really like a lot of what Krishnamurti uh, has to say about, uh, about awakening, enlightenment and liberation. Mm-hmm. Especially since it's not so tied to a Buddhist doctrine, but he actually draws from a lot of different Indian tra- philosophical traditions and other, other philosophical traditions. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the things I'm interested in, first of all, maybe you could tell me some of the anarchist theorists or political theorists that you've, that you like, that you've drawn from in, in your comparison of Buddhism and anarchism, which anarchists Hmm. work for you?
1: Sure. So yeah, like (laughs) the anarchist uh, philosophical tradition is uh, just about as diverse as buddhist one. so there's um any kind of anarchist philosophy out there there's so many different directions people take it i think like a general way of stating like a core assumption of all the anarchists out there is that you know they make a critique of power um as related to like hierarchical social structures ruling people and another key idea being that the state or government or generally like institutions of law and rule um, aren't neutral institutions, but that they rule for themselves in a sense. So that differs from like the socialist or communist um, Marxist kind of ideal that it's a neutral institution that you can reform from within. Whereas anarchists kind of see it as like the people who act within governments and states um, necessarily have to conform to the rules of the state as Mm -hmm. they end up reproducing it Mm -hmm. Uh, so that being said uh, i myself kind of within the school of thought of like anarchist communism um, as advocated by peter kropotkin um, very influential russian uh, scientist and anarchist writer
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and then i guess in more modern times uh I was deeply influenced by the work of Murray Bookchin. He's an American um, philosopher, lived in Vermont, New York, mm-hmm. kind of on the East Coast, or neck of the woods. And he was very much in that kind of tradition of anarchist communism, and then sort of updated it to include a lot of ecological thought, yep. and just kind of dealing with uh, modern problems. He especially advocated like a form of kind of federated communal direct democracy that he called communalism. Yep. Um, so yeah, those-
0: I'm a Bookchin fan myself. It's yeah. especially for that reason, because he actually worked out a system of self-governance that would actually work.
1: You know, yeah. that was yeah. actually
0: pragmatic and doable. You know, yeah.
1: And doing this research and also being a Bookchin fan is kind of funny because he really had a bone to pick with sort of um, new age mystical spiritual anarchists (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and i think uh, for the most part he was right (laughs) so um uh, just like he a lot of times spent uh, a good deal of his energy criticizing the uh sort of Mm anti-rational kind of you know cosmic oneness sort of floofy stuff that people would bring up and i think you know, he was kind of a jerk about it, but, um, for the most part, he was right. Um, there's a, there's a scholar that I've learned about recently this year and I've been really interested in, named Hakugen Ichikawa. He was a, um, Japanese Zen priest and, uh, professor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was from like, kind of working from like 1930s to the 70s or so, um, and he spent most of his career after the war just like ruthlessly criticizing Zen and Japanese Buddhism for their collaboration in um, Japanese imperialism.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And he, um, in a few of his works, put forward uh, another idea, you know, um, called it Buddhist anarchism communism or um, Shunyata anarchism communism, so emptiness as his sort of um solution to the problem of collusion like buddhist collusion with violent institutions
0: yeah um, yes yeah
1: he didn't really explain it very much um he just sort of put it out there from what i can tell is this idea but what i've been trying to do is read through what um work of his i have access to and mostly look at his critiques of zen and Um, Buddhist ideology to try to figure out what his kind of like ideas for what needs to change about it are. Um, But one thing he he definitely points, he makes very similar criticisms to Bookchin, sort of criticizing the sort of mystical anti-rationalism that became popular in like discourses around Zen, for example, as being like, um, I'd say lending itself to kind of accommodationism with whatever is just being kind of going with the flow as being a big issue and the lack of uh, concern for discriminating rational thought in favor of sort of a mystic oneness, it's all goodness kind of feeling.
0: Yeah, right. Mm
1: -hmm. So I think his criticisms are really useful for kind of understanding like what's wrong with Buddhism that has allowed it to, you know, collaborate in war and fascism pretty enthusiastically at different t- times in history.
0: Right. And, and um, cleansing and genocide. And, yeah.
1: Exactly. Right.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. And, and I think kind of a point that I've been coming to from that criticism that he makes and others just reading about, you know, the the bad history <laughs> of Buddhism is, Mm-hmm. That um or I think his his specific quote that got me thinking about it was if Buddhism is to possess possess social thought, it must take the form of Buddhism, anarchism, communism mm-hmm. it was his his uh I think phrasing of that. And it's interesting because what he's saying is that for the most part, Buddhism lacks a social thought or like an ideology of society and politics. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is if you lack that, um, as an institution or a movement or an individual, most likely thing is you're going to end up accepting all or parts of whatever the dominant ideology going is. Yeah. And so his proposition was, I think, you know, if you want to make um, Buddhism or Zen a movement for liberation, like liberation theology or Dharma. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have like an ideology in place, which is able to kind of resist um, the currents uh, of the times of people in power and maintain like a consistent, uh, coherent kind of rational opposition. Cause otherwise, um, you know, you just, it, end, it just kind of ends up getting assimilated into whatever is going on at the time, which is usually bad. <laughs>
0: Right. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's sort of the whole notion of Buddhism adapting to different cultures and societies as it goes from one culture to another, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, it's also gets assimilated and co-opted, you know, and mm-hmm. generally speaking, Buddhism has been adopted usually by the elite and the ruling class before it was adopted by lower classes or, you know, the people. Um, So I don't really know of any examples where Buddhism went to the people first and before it got to, you know, the existing uh, priesthood, uh, you know, or the existing uh, ruling elite or the existing Mm -hmm. scholastic elite philosophers, whatever. So and I'm not against philosophy and scholasticism or anything. It's another thing to learn from, you know. Uh, But yeah, so that's kind of the other side of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and kind of like what that kind of brings up for me, too. I don't know what you think about this, but first of all, it came to America first amongst uh, immigrant uh, populations from Japan and China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it
1: didn't spread and convert
0: uh,
1: American, like native-born American citizens until later.
0: Because they were conducting services in their own languages, basically for their immigrant groups. And, um, and again, there was some contact between uh, English speaking native uh, people and uh, immigrant groups, but it wasn't, they, the two hadn't merged at all. I mean, let's face mm-hmm. it, just, they were in contact with each other, they knew about each other, but they really were not doing this together. You know, they were, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a joint sort of endeavor. Um, So they were sort of separated in that sense, but so that, you know, Buddhism has been in America really uh, through the Asian immigration uh, really since the early 1900s or slightly before that, late 1800s, but uh, where Buddhism became sort of part of the popular uh, consciousness was in the 1950s uh, and which through Asian teachers, you know, uh, like Mm -hmm. Suzuki, and Chagim Trumpa and several other Zen teachers who came here. Uh, I can't think of the names right off the top of my head, but uh, but there were some Theravada teachers who came here to teach, they taught at universities. Um, Gunaratna from Sri Lanka was here. Uh, there was a couple that were here from the 50s and 60s who were uh, Theravada te- professors mostly. Um, so uh, and so because it, 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 the particular time that it got to uh, the sort of native uh, native consciousness of, of Americans, it was during the 60s, it was during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, exactly. Right, so it sort of it, 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 it came, and it, it, one wonders if it really could have made any inroads except during that period when people were rejecting everything about the dominant culture. Right, they were in the process of like mm-hmm. rejecting the dominant culture, looking for something new. And then, of course, the Buddhism has already been there since the early 20th century, but now it's like, oh, we just discovered this. We discovered Buddhism, you know. Um, and they were because they were looking for something new, uh, it was able to become part of the popular American culture.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah,
1: that's that's, I think. Um... Another point that I've identified that's interesting to me is uh, that particular like historical convergence of um, massive like countercultural revolution in the West, a lot of interest in um, yeah anarchic ways of living and seeing the world, if not explicit anarchism itself, although that also had a revival around that time. Um,
2: Mm-hmm. socialism
1: as well, people rejecting various forms of authority. And then at the same time, people coming over here to teach a version of Buddhism that they had modernized back in their own countries largely in response to Western colonialism. Um, so it's that like mixture of you know countercultural West plus modernist uh Buddhist missionaries coming over here that really like lit that spark in an interesting way for me. Uh, and for for the culture at large Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, and I think for uh, that is probably one of the reasons that well not very a big reason things like uh, racism and cultural superiority are more um, obvious reasons for why earlier immigrant communities um, Buddhism didn't get widely adopted but I think like also having the uh, modernist kind of missionary spin on it um, really did, uh, light that spark in the, in the quote unquote Western people. Right.
0: right. And, and basically, um, uh, you know, white Euro, descended, uh, Americans really got, you know, was more in tune to white teachers, right? European white teachers who had gone to India and Thailand and Burma and, uh, Sri Lanka and brought all this stuff back. So, uh, so it was, you know, it was this combination of it was a combination of, um, you know, translation and you know uh, the separation of Asian immigrants from white uh, uh, native-born people, and also the need for translation. I mean, when when Chogyam Trungpa started teaching in the '60s, '50s, and '60s, nothing was translated into English. Okay, like none of the Tibetan texts have been translated into English. And he actually translated as he spoke, like he would have a book of Tibetan mm. teachings, and he would actually translate it into English as he spoke, right? So that 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 was he had to we had to overcome that barrier. It was a language barrier. Um, so, um, but now of course, like for instance, one of the interesting things I found recently, Jack Kerouac, uh, the poet, the Beat poet, who uh, was a very ardent Buddhist, was completely self-taught. He actually got most of his Buddhist teachings from books he borrowed from the library, okay? like he didn't have any Buddhist teachers. He didn't go to a Mm -hmm. Buddhist school, he had no Buddhist teachers, except his poet friends who were also into Buddhism like him. But he got everything from books that he borrowed from the library. And you can imagine back in the 1940s, how many books in your local library would have been about Buddhism in English? you know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Not many, and there was no such thing as internet and so on, you know, but yet he managed to be completely self-taught and, 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 uh, quite a, a sort of inspirational way and a very kind of in a very anarchist way. I think you have an example of a, uh, a Buddhist, uh, anar- cultural anarchist is Jack Kerouac. For-
1: yeah. Yeah. Him, him and Snyder and all these people. And that, yeah, just kind of reminds me of another interesting parallel is, um, Anarchist historian George Woodcock, I think, uh, made the point that, like, anarchism and other um, sort of aspirational utopian political ideologies, socialism, communism, in some senses have kind of taken the place of religion uh, for people. They they function somewhat as a secular religion Mm -hmm. in the sense of being a practical philosophy so you know not just a something to speculate about the origin of the universe or whatever but a way to change your life and change society for the better yeah uh, ethical codes to live by that sort so in that I, I also kind of point out a similarity there is sort of anarchism being a secular practical philosophy and as well as modernized buddhism more or less functioning in the same way um, as a uh, yeah a practical philosophy, you know, meditation practice as well as study, um, ethical guidelines that um, have hugely reduced their uh, kind of like religious um, trappings and decorations, if not totally eliminated them in some places, and that's that's been kind of a goal. In some ways of um, movements like anarchism to come to a kind of a practical philosophy which encompasses social personal interpersonal political liberation so that's that's kind of a point of convergence for them that i find to be interesting as well Mm -hmm. The, the practical philosophy side of it it's there's Anarchists who are just philosophical, they don't act it out. There's Buddhists who are just philosophical, who don't act it out. But if you're really, I think, uh, into it and good at it, you're trying to live out these um, ways of living in some senses too, I think, like, like adding anarchism to Buddhism um, benefits Buddhism a lot because anarchists, I think have, for the most part worked out some more specific and useful guidelines for how to treat others (laughs) in the world um, in non-harmful ways, um, like probably uh, that are more useful today than um, just kind of the general Buddhist ones of like, you know, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. Whereas anarchists, you know, know, really gone down the rabbit hole into being like, well, how do we like, how do we figure out ways of doing transformative justice for people who have hurt others, but we don't want to punish them either, and try to make you know social healing happen? It's like mm-hmm. people—it's kind of continuation of the same work. So it has a lot to add to and inform mm-hmm. Buddhist ethics. That's really
0: good. that's really cool. I would really like. That.
1: Yeah, and I, I, Buddhism obviously has a problem with authority and power um, in it. So the anarchist critique of power can add a lot to buddhists um, you know desire to act out an ethic of non-harming non non-stealing um that's her, these uh kind of the sila side of the trainings um in, in ways that respond to kind of like modern abuses of power and hierarchy and, and moreover it does it provides like you know structural suggestions for like concretely how to address things when things go wrong or how to structure things to prevent harm from happening in the first place, or at least minimize it. And that I think too, is kind of like, you know, applying a principle of, um, non-harming to society from a Buddhist perspective and an anarchist perspective is kind of taking a position of harm reduction, both acknowledge that suffering and, um, harm and wrongdoing is never going to be totally eliminated. But, um, you know, anarchists say that we ought to structure society such that we can reduce or disincentivize them, um, you know, negative behaviors to the highest degree we possibly can Mm
2: -hmm.
1: without, you know, um, hurting or forcing others into those arrangements. And um, a lot of times I think pre-modern Buddhists haven't taken that kind of leap because there wasn't really much in the way of uh, like social philosophy back in the ancient world. Um,
0: but yeah, not, not so much among amongst Buddhists, for sure. I mean, yeah. it sort of lacks a political, like you said, it sort of lacks a political philosophy. Um, I mean, we have Emperor Ashoka, but he's an emperor, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, there's this tendency to, Sort of latch on whatever power structure is there, and then try to influence that power structure—the king, the monarch, the emperor. Yeah, uh, and the
1: uh, and yeah uh, that uh, that particular idea of being able to, like, uh, intentionally change society structurally for the better was not very common back in the day. Even for, for example, like the anarchist Taoist philosophers you know, they had a theory of individual action and then they had theories of like, how to be a better bureaucrat or sovereign that uh, is, you know, not um, abusing state power, but they didn't have necessarily an idea of, you know, building a federation of communes or something um, that kind of came about after the European enlightenment, which kind of random digression here, but um, David Graeber, the anarchist writer Um, he just passed away in the last year. Um, but he he was working on a book that's going to come out. Um, I've heard him talk about that. He kind of puts forward the theory that, um, the enlightenment philosophers in Europe who kind of started putting forward the idea of "Hmm, maybe we should improve society somewhat intentionally along rational lines, um, especially towards, um, kind of communistic and anarchistic directions originally kind of picked that idea up from debates they had with indigenous North Americans um, who, for a large part, many of their societies were structured along communistic and anarchistic lines.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that's just a really, I don't know, it's, it's kind of inserting into that debate of like, well, people having, you know, the enlightenment theory of intentional social revolution, not even being in an, an Entirely European invention either but a result right. of colonization and dialogue much in the way that other like ideas we're discussing like uh, Buddhist modernism have been so sure.
2: it's interesting sure. to
1: like kind of break down that like cultural philosophical essentialism and look at how these ideas actually emerged from you know conflict and cooperation and talking and debating and stuff right
0: right yeah uh, That that's very very interesting I didn't know that too yeah uh, since the since the um the lockdown now people have basically have been pretty much people have been pretty much locked down on their own and uh unable to go to a shrine or a temple or uh meditation hall or you know people have been doing a lot of stuff on zoom but i think that this could possibly have um a big influence on the kind of structures that we build from here on out in mm-hmm. buddhism like for instance you know the whole sort of podcast, you know, blog and podcast uh, um, movement or you know trend, okay? That basically mm-hmm. we, we're getting a lot of our Buddhism now for our inspiration from each other, right? Directly horizontally from each other. Um, it doesn't really cost you anything to run a blog. I mean, I've been doing it for years, it doesn't cost me anything really, $25 a year or something like that. Um, you know, as long as you have access to a computer, you can do a blog. You can do even do a podcast with a little bit more technology. Um, and uh, you know, this Twitter, social spaces, you know, and, um, Reddit, you know, groups and whatever. These are all groups where people are connecting online, bypassing um, Buddhist organizations, you know, mm-hmm. per se, and. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I see some things, I see some trends happening. One is that the internet has connected us directly, right? We don't need to go through intermediaries, intermediary organizations anymore, right? We're connecting directly through the internet. We're co- connecting through Zoom. We're connecting through uh, social media. Cheap paperback books, relatively speaking, are readily available. And so people can learn the Dharma themselves, you know, through to teachers, but you don't have to go see the teacher. It's like, you get the book, right? You can mm-hmm. read the book yourself, right? And then discuss it. Um, uh, I think these kinds of, especially the internet is dramatically changing the way that Buddhism is being practiced in the, at least in the West. And I think in, in I, I can't say, cause I'm not there but I would think in Asia as well, um, that people are connecting directly to each other and learning from each other rather than going through some kind of intermediary teacher or organization. Now, I don't know what you think about that I and mean, your work, now you have a blog and what do you think uh, from, that, from that perspective?
1: Um. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's definitely a thing. Uh, yeah. And it's not just with Buddhism, but all, all walks of life, people are kind of, being able to connect on more like specific interests in a horizontal manner without any intermediaries. Um, But also at the same time, I, you know, I really value having like face-to-face personal connections with people. So I think that can be one like kind of downside of internet communities being like, you know, Buddhist ones, anarchist communities online are kind of notoriously, uh, intense. (laughs) Um,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, it can be pretty nasty sometimes because people just get so wrapped up in like dogma and ideology and arguing that there's not really an emphasis on, uh, personal connections, which just have a very different, uh, flavor of satisfaction for participating. And so kind of My my ideal, I guess, is sort of an intermediate. (laughs) Like um, during this uh, whole lockdown time, I've been participating in a study group with some friends of mine locally. We've been studying different anarchist theories, Um, and that I think has been like a really grounding kind of community for me. So I think we've been meeting over zoom for the most part, but lately we've started meeting in person, but I think, you know, this, it applies for um, Buddhists as well as I think like for me, at least the ideal kind of um, internet kind of based group is sort of a more closely knit face-to-face kind of discussion group where you can talk about ideas, but also like just your personal life and like kind of establish bonds of trust with people being Mm -hmm. very important kind of like the uh the anarchist idea of organization by affinity group
0: right so so
1: close close close-knit groups of people who then get together with other close-knit groups of people who have similar ideas and work together i think that can be a really good kind of organ uh organization model as well as just learning and communal support
0: right right yeah um you know what I find interesting really too, in terms of uh, anarchist uh, organizing. Uh, I'm not sure if this is still going. We sort of flipped over into two minutes and 51 seconds past the 40-minute mark, and I don't, uh-huh. but we're still connected, so I assume this is still working and it's still recording, as far as I can tell. So, whatever, let's okay. keep going. Um, uh, have you been? Uh, I've been. I've been following very much uh, the Milk Tea Alliance, which is this whole movement of. Uh, Pro democracy movement in Southeast Asia, uh, yeah. you know, which I think is fabulous. I think it's 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 exciting. It's it's amazing. It's also very scary. People are suffering a great deal. There's a lot of people are suffering a lot of violence and uh, dis- displacement. But nonetheless, uh, people in uh, uh, Hong Kong and um, Thailand and Taiwan, Burma or Myanmar, um, even in the Philippines, Malaysia. Uh, India, the the farmers strike in India. Um, there, there's a whole. I mean, basically all of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, even um, Japan, Korea. But we just keep going. Um, are engulfed in this whole pro pro democracy movement, and they call it democracy. They're not calling it anarchism, but many of many much of the organizing that's happening is an anarchist style of. Mm-hmm. of uh, movement it's not a sort of a white european liberal democracy type of let's all let's form a party and you know get elected type of thing this, this is this is street street based movements protest movements
2: right
0: um you know in burma it's even it's 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 a total revolution we want to change this education school system we want to change our relationships with our Ethnic uh, compatriots who've been excluded in prior constitutions and prior governments. Um, we want to uh, change the, the role of women. We want to support gay rights. I mean, it's not just about elected officials. It's a total revolution, total social and political revolution. Um, and, and my feeling about it is that this is going going on now for a couple of years. You know, it's mm. I, ex- I expect it to continue because it seems to just kind of. Reignite itself; it, it just keeps going, and, and a lot of it is directed against uh, China and the CCP, the Communist Party of China, which is an, a totalitarian, authoritarian government. Where mm-hmm. it's 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 not Marxist <laughs> communism. This is mm-hmm. my opinion. It's um, it's Confucian communism, right? It's a totalitarian kind of mm-hmm. so-called communism. Anyway, so so a lot of their uh, a lot of their Protests is directed toward the CCP and the involvement of the CCP in these, you know, attempt to control or even possess Taiwan, Hong Kong, and sort of economically control through its Belt and Road system. You know, Burma, a lot of this stuff is being built to go right through Burma, which is why some of these these tribal ethnic uh, people are being displaced because actually the Belt and Road system is going right through Burma. Mm-hmm. um and uh and, and right into india right into, right to pakistan um through pakistan so you know um the tibetans the the, the uh the free tibet organizations are a part of this whole coalition i mean to me and i keep saying this and i'm and i don't have any hardcore proof at this point but that my feeling is that this revolution is going to have a tremendous impact on Buddhism in the future. Okay, mm, these I hope are, so. Yeah, I, 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 I don't see how it couldn't, you know, I mean, um, because it, it's, a, it's, it's not just a political revolution, it's a total cultural, social, and even spiritual revolution that's going on there. And yeah, yeah so I wonder if, if you've had any thoughts about that too.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been reading some of the stuff on your blog about it. You've been doing a great job covering it, I think. And um, I also like this podcast, Insight Myanmar, which has been interviewing people um, who are participating in the revolution there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, uh, kind of. Well, the Hong Kong stuff um, last year really got everyone's attention around the world, and to the extent where even like anarchists in Portland a few hours south of me are, you know, copying um, strategies and techniques developed by Hong Kongers to fight the police um, during George Floyd uprising
2: here. Mm -hmm.
1: So, you know, it's this sort of like transnational, uh, like horizontal um, knowledge transfer that goes on through the internet and through media, which is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of part of this almost like unbroken, or you know, comes and stops and starts wave since uh, like the Arab Spring movements yeah. occupy. It's 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 kind of still a continuation of that same thing, which right. people have pointed out tends towards being pretty anarchistic in its organization and tactics. Um, and I, I I kind of got clued into the milk tea stuff through the um, revolution in Burma. Uh, a friend of mine. Um, here in town is uh, their family is um, ethnic refugees from Burma. And so when that coup kicked off, they wanted to talk about it. So I kind of got really interested and fascinated by Burmese history and politics because it's really (laughs) complex and tragic and inspiring and Mm -hmm. um, everything basically. (laughs) So I've been I've been following that Pretty closely since then, um, and I think it's it's really amazing, like how strong the uh, the revolutionary uprising is. There, you know, uh, people here will, you know, radicals will be like, we should have a general strike, blah blah blah. But they're they're like having a for real general strike going on for months to topple the government. It's you know really incredible, um, especially considering the level of violence and totalitarianism they're up against. Uh, And that kind of, I guess, points me to a particular idea I have about um, social movements and anarchist, the role of anarchists and anarchist ideology. Um, I didn't, it's not my own idea, but I learned it from reading some um, occurrence of anarchism from Latin America called Especifismo. it's really good. uh, There's some really good pieces um, that have been translated kind of detailing their ideology. In a lot of ways, it's just kind of standard anarchism, but what they something that I've learned from it that has really changed my thinking has been they make the point that the role of anarchism is not to make more people be anarchists or make everybody be anarchists and then we have a revolution and institute utopia or Mm -hmm. something like that but um it's instead they 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 frame it as like an engine or a motor that exists within social movements driving them forwards Mm
2: -hmm. um
1: towards greater and greater kind of practices of freedom yeah Um, so what their strategy they advocate and i think you know, you can do it consciously, but I think it's also happening unconsciously, naturally, as you can see with this whole progression of revolutions since the Arab Spring and probably before. Is anarchists and radicals working within social movements um, are working to generate ideas and practices which help those movements achieve their own goals, and in turn, um, kind of normalize. Um, relationships of less and less hierarchy among um, participants in revolutionary social movements. And then it's it's the task of the social movements themselves fighting for their own goals based in more like kind of tangible concerns Mm -hmm. to actually institute revolutionary change. And anarchists are meant to work within that continuously, you know, even after revolutions, to keep pushing the agenda of freedom farther and farther. Um, so I think that's something that we see with, like, stuff like the milk tea where um, anarchist tactics or protest methods or certain language gets adopted without an explicit, um, like, unified ideology. So I think it's it's a really wise kind of uh, approach to looking at social change strategy where it's recognizing the inherent like diversity and messiness and confusingness of social movements, while also being able to kind of like advocate for a clear coherent position as, a, as an active minority within them. So in a sense, I think that's also a good place for like Buddhist anarchists to be is position themselves as like members of a religion who are an active minority within it, advocating for, if not changing people's explicit ideology, at least their practices. Um,
0: I think that's a very, very good point. And that's something i really like to look into more. What, what's the name of this uh, sort
1: of movement? Um, it's, uh, it's called Especifismo. It's just Spanish for kind of like specificism. Because yeah. <laughs> um, okay. they, they advocate for anarchists to form like specific organizations dedicated towards producing um, practices and ideas that are useful for social movements It kind of posits kind of like an instrumental, Mm -hmm. um, version of anarchism saying like, it's not something that necessarily exists for its own sake, but it's a tool for helping people get themselves more free, which is also a parallel between, uh, forms of Buddhism that I like, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not something that's a truth eternal thing you have to have faith in. It's a tool for, um, opening up your horizons of freedom internally Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i i I, one thing i had a discussion with uh, some people about um because buddhism doesn't seem to have a political ideology um that's very specific in some ways you're free to come up with whatever you want i mean Mm -hmm. because there's nothing specified you can do whatever works for you i mean or, or for your group or whatever um there's a way in which uh, i phrase it i I frame it that if if there is no specific ideology about a state or a government and how it's supposed to be run then maybe buddhism doesn't need a state or a government to run you know what i'm Mm -hmm.
1: saying
0: there's a way it it doesn't need one and And i would
1: yeah i'd go even farther and say that um having one hurts it
0: right um, exactly.
1: sort of like the opposite kind of conception of separation of church and state of being like we have to keep the state secular protected from religious authority but it also goes the other way of saying like you know the inherent violence of state systems of rule you know the uh, I think the the term is like monopoly on legitimate violence that right. the states hold. Um, when it significantly like intermingles with religion, it really hurts the, uh, you know, kind of like the ethical core of those religions.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And there's a way that that anarchist Buddhism is almost implied by the fact that there is no political ideology, specific, there is no you know specific political ideology. So anarchism could work just mm-hmm.
2: like
0: as well as anything else, and um, we could we could establish uh, anarchist co- communes or, or sangas if you want to call them that, uh, you know, as well as we could, you know, as well as other any other sort of organizational form. Um, even the recommendations about it, there's there's very little in the way of economics in, in Buddhism either, mm-hmm. but but to me that just seems well you're free to come up with whatever economics works for you. And it's yeah. way in which, because there isn't anything specific, it, Buddhism isn't tied to a particular place or a particular time, right? It's not tied to Greek democracy. It's not tied to, uh, um, it doesn't have to be tied to um, imperialist or monarchist uh, for, forms of government. It's not tied to um, bourgeois, um, parliamentary style governments either, you know? It's yeah. not tied to any of that. It's not tied that,
1: to capitalism. that. That freedom to choose is really important because
0: yeah.
1: if you if you do just like take a strictly like historical look at it, you're gonna say like, oh, the vast majority of Buddhist history is um, some kind of interaction with monarchies or empires. Um, and so if you just take like historical precedent, you're gonna say that's what it is. But, you know, I think part of being um in the modern era is recognizing that we actually have you know rational capabilities to choose uh what kind of society we want to live in and advocate it and influence others to make it happen
0: exactly exactly that's true so where do you see your blog going now or your research going now and
1: um well i must i started the blog just because um i found that like Publishing little bits of things is good motivation to keep researching. You know, I get like feedback and, you know, um, positive comments or critical comments that are useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, mostly been the inspiration for the blog is to just have an outlet for publishing and getting feedback on the research and being able to discover new stuff. So um, I'm just going to continue with that for now on, you know, uh, there's a lot of different dimensions to this I want to be able to like flesh out, make a good case for coherently. So I'm right now I've been working on um, kind of history, mm-hmm. biography. Um, I did like this kind of general gloss over of ancient history and I'm now getting into these like modern um, Buddhist anarchists like Uchiyama Gudo. And I've got several others I've been researching. I'm going to hopefully publish about soon. Um, Um, And yeah, just going to continue trying to kind of like refine some of these uh, philosophical ideas or practical um, kind of critical ideas um, into just, you know, a digestible format for people, Uh, maybe someday publish it in a book or a compilation sort of thing with um, other people interested in this stuff. That's kind of where I'm seeing myself going with it, just uh, plotting along. Have you
0: ever been in touch with Glenn Wallace? He just wrote a book on anarchism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've I've talked to him a little bit. His uh, some of his stuff is uh, really useful, especially the critical kind of non-Buddhism or his book critique mm-hmm. of Western Buddhism. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Neither like putting forward like a explicitly anarchist vision, but sort of like. Ichikawa Hakken's criticism that the deconstruction kind of helps you reconstruct something, and it, it's been really useful in that regard. Cool. Yeah, Glenn Wallace has been very helpful. Um, Brian Victoria's stuff,
0: mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, maybe at some point we could all kind of get together and put together a compilation of things. That would be a, a sort of a, a nice yeah. project, you know? Yeah.
1: I think that would be a good uh, positive step for things. Just kind of. Because for the most part, people writing on this stuff, have everything I've found in (laughs) English in the past 20 years or so is all blogs. Um, So if we can eventually break out of the blogosphere a little bit, that would be, I think, a very good step in terms of like positively influencing the culture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great idea. Well, I, I think we're going to end it on that note, Reed. It's been really, really good talking to you. I feel really very enriched and very uh, informed by what you said and encouraged awesome. uh, to continue uh, looking at this stuff and practicing. So I really thank you for that. And uh, thank you for the podcast for coming on and talking to me. And um, yeah, so, and I just really really glad for what you're you're doing and what you're putting out there so thank yeah
1: you it's that. very encouraging thanks for reaching out and talking to me probably like to talk to you again not too long from now because there's there's a lot of ideas too that i think uh, you have experience with that i'd like to pick your brain on like for sure. example like embed cars navayana buddhism i know very little about and it seems like you've written and researched it pretty extensively mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot of um, Good stuff to work with there in terms of you know social social change revolution mm-hmm. um, issues of like class the state economics all that stuff.
0: Absolutely, definitely. I'd love to talk about that. So let's make that a future uh, future podcast.
1: Cool.
2: Great.